Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall, receive, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Anna. Um, about three years ago, I was reading... Um, a book by Francis Chan called Forgotten God. And in it, he tells the story of how he was sitting in a seminary class and the professor said that when you come to a theology that you don't know where you fully stand, whatever you lean towards more, teach it as if it's 100%. So basically he told him that if you, you are struggling with something but you feel like it's like 51% in this direction, just teach this direction like 100%. And in it, in the book, he goes on to say that's extremely confusing and frustrating um, and I would agree with him. Um, when you come to a text that you don't fully understand in the Bible and it's kind of vague and you're still trying to wrestle with it and you feel like you're leaning in direction, I would not say in that moment, yes, just act like that is it. I would say rather um, be honest and, and go to the text and go, man, this is, this is hard. There seems to be pressure points on both of these sides. And um, as we go into specifically the Beatitudes today, I will say I have not struggled, and this is not like a martyr moment, but I have not struggled preparing for a sermon since we went through the fig tree back in Mark, if you were with us, which is almost a year and three months ago. Um, this morning, Beatitudes may sound simple. It is widely divided in how to approach these Beatitudes. And because of that, um, I'm going to spend of the 40 minutes we have together, 30 minutes before we ever get to the text. Now, I want to talk about the text, okay? But for us to understand what the Beatitudes are, and for us to understand what the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus gathers his disciples and crowds around him and begins to teach this sermon, for us to understand what's going on, we need to know the context, okay? And for us to understand the context, there are three big, huge bullet points that I want to get at. Here's the first one. When we bring these RC leaders up, when we talk about congregations, and we talk about you talking to your neighbor, um, we are getting at something that when, when we first started gathering on Sundays, I kept saying, and that is this. We're planting a church, and we've planted a church about a year and a half ago for one purpose, for the purpose of mission. We believe God has sent us here to create worship in a place that lacks it. We believe God has sent us here for the purpose of mission, and that is because we believe our God is on a mission. And what I want to talk about is that mission. I want to talk about what God is doing. So, so um, we, we broke this down before, right? Because we recognize that God made all things good and we recognize the world's broken. If you're not a Christian in here, you, you know that. Like walk down any aisle way, you'll find 10 ways to do this or five ways to find a better love life or, or this is how you have a better marriage. We know that the world is broken. We get it, okay? And I want to explain why and I want to explain what God is doing in that. What is that mission? What mission are we a part of? Because it's God's mission. Chris Wright in his book, uh, The Mission of God's People, has a great quote where he says, it's not that God has a mission for his church, but rather he has a church for his mission. God is doing something. 
Since the brokenness of the world has started in Genesis 3, God has actively been doing something. What? What is he doing? What is he doing through the Renaissance, through the Dark Ages? What is he doing through the, the, the turn of the first and second millennium? What is he doing? So I want to, as arrogant as this may sound, and I don't mean to sound patronizing, present to you the most developed theology I can give you of what you, as a Christian, have probably believed all your life, but you didn't know it. What I mean by that is, if you are a Christian, this is a proper approach to understanding what God's mission is. So I have to write it down because um, I don't want to, I want to make sure it's crystal clear. This is what we believe God's mission is, okay? We believe God is on a mission to, and this is as simple as I can get, establish his kingdom here on earth forever. So God has this garden of Eden and Satan seeps in and everything's disrupted, but God does not lose. He didn't go out. Well, I lost that battle. Maybe I'll win the next one. No, 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 no. He's not done. And so he is going to establish his rule in doing that. Now, this is tricky because in the brokenness of the world, we recognize as Christians, it's broken because right now in God's sovereignty, he has allowed Satan to be in charge. Now, if you're not a Christian, that may sound crazy. But what we would hold to right now, the principality of the air, according to Ephesians 2, the prince of darkness, according to John 16, he's in charge. And when Satan is in charge, things suck. When he does this, when, when, he, when he rules, I wrote a list actually, so you can see the influence that he has in all these things. He, Satan, right now, he influences our ideals, our opinions, our goals, our hopes, and views of the majority of all the people on the earth. His influences also encompass the world's philosophy, education, and commerce. The thoughts, the ideas, the speculations, and false religions of this world are under his control and have sprung up from lies and deception. We believe that right now the world is broken because the proper ruler is not in place. And when the proper ruler is not in place, when he is unjust, when he hates us, he rules with an iron fist, he thumbs us down, he doesn't care. And so we experience what it's like to die because we were never created for that. We experience what it's like to, to be brokenhearted by someone you cared about, but we weren't created for that. To lose a loved one, to feel like anxiety and depression, we weren't created for that. That's because the wrong ruler is in charge right now. But here's the beauty of all of this. Jesus comes onto the scene and he announces in the midst of this kingdom of darkness, a kingdom. And he tells them, repent and believe for the kingdom is at hand. And that kingdom, the moment Jesus comes as a king and he presents this kingdom, we believe that kingdom is the right way for humanity. Or better put it, we find our utmost joy in his kingdom. Meaning this, the world is broken in the world we live in. We see it and we experience it. The world is the way it's supposed to be in the kingdom of God. Now Jesus came on the scene and announced this kingdom and we don't even fully understand what it is. Honestly, we, we know to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, but it's kind of this awkward, weird thing. We don't know what to do with this kingdom. So I want to give you four things that I think are important for you to understand what this kingdom is and, and how valuable it is to, to, to lay into all of this. But before I do this, I want you to know why. Um, and here's the context of the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount more appropriately. Um, in, in chapter 5 is when the whole Sermon on the Mount starts. But in chapter 4 in the book of Matthew, we're given some context. And I want you to hear what the context is. This is the context in, Ephesians, or in, uh, in Matthew 4, right before he gets into the Sermon on the Mount. 
And he, talking about Jesus, went uh, throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. I put in parentheses telling, I'll explain that. And healing every disease and every affliction among the people, showing. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick and those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee to Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So here's what happens. Jesus comes onto the scene in this present age of darkness, and he says, I have a new kingdom. And he's proclaiming this new kingdom. So he is teaching about this new kingdom. But he's not just talking about it with words. He's literally going around and saying, guess what? In my kingdom, there is no pain. There is no darkness. There are no demons. And he's showing what his kingdom looks like. So what is this kingdom? Here's the reality, guys. First and foremost, understand this. Jesus talks about the kingdom of God more than he talks about everything else combined. The kingdom of God appears 68 times in the New Testament. A synonym to the kingdom of God, 31 times the kingdom of heaven. And actually at one time, it's called the kingdom of Christ. This is what the Bible is about. This is God's mission. God recognizes the brokenness of the world. Satan entered his kingdom and says, I have not lost. Let me establish my kingdom. And he establishes it through Jesus. This kingdom is here. It's real. It's awesome. It's big. He talks about this a lot. Now, there are three things in understanding that. The first thing is this kingdom, and we've got a lot to do, so, so bear with me. The first thing is this. This kingdom, this is where I sound insane amounts of crazy, is invisible, okay? So you're talking to your friend, like, dude, I'm part of this kingdom. Cool, where is it? Well, it's like, it's invisible, okay? You sound crazy, right? But here, here's the reality. Um, when Jesus comes on the scene, he, he gives us a foretaste of what he's going to do. So there's still brokenness, isn't there? Man, there's demons, there's pain, there's a lack of healing, there's hate. We're broken between us and, and, and each other. We're broken between us and God, us and creation. Things are broken. And yet here is this kingdom that Jesus says he's come to establish. And this is tricky because only Christians know what that kingdom's like. If you are a Christian in here, he has given you a glimpse as to, to what things are supposed to be like. He has given you a foretaste right now. It's invisible. We can't see it. But us as Christians know he is real. Us as Christians know he is doing something. Matter of fact, the religious leaders of the time um, really struggled with this, and they asked about the kingdom. In Luke 17, 20 through 21, it says this, Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So here, the kingdom of God, when Jesus comes and starts, he lays this out. Now, here's the trick in all of this. You are citizens of that kingdom. If you're a Christian, if you say you follow Jesus Christ, you now are a part of a different kingdom that is in the midst of this brokenness. This kingdom that we see, that we feel, that we know, we as Christians say, I'm in this different kingdom. Now you sound crazy. But it gets worse for you if you're a Christian because you can only sound crazier at this point because from here, though we believe the kingdom of God is invisible and it's something we experience, we believe one day it will be physical. We believe the truth is when it's all said and done, people will see the way things are supposed to be. People will see that king. Matter of fact, in Revelation 21, if you don't know your Bible, at the very end of your Bible, this is what it says. Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things. Do you hear that? Do you hear that term? The old order of things. uh, I lost my place there. Oh, the old order of things has passed away. So the way the world used to be right now, the way, like all the pain, all the, it will not be like that forever. So if you are a Christian in here, the longing in your heart, what makes you go, yes, what makes you wish that there was uh, a something more to this, that will be real. Mike Goheen in his book, Drum of Scripture, I think lays it out perfectly when he says this. Heaven, the dwelling place of God, comes down to the earth in a dramatic image of restored unity and harmony between the creator and what he has created. God himself comes to dwell on the new earth with humankind. Sin and all its effects are removed. There is no more death or sickness or pain, but only peace and harmony because the relationship between God and humankind has been healed. So this is important because if you grew up as a Christian, you probably were led to believe in escapism. The idea that Jesus has come to save your souls. And he came to save your souls, and this world is corrupt, and one day you're going to be taken out of this world and go, like, sit on clouds and sing to him and all of those things. And I just want to put in front of you that is grossly inaccurate and completely anti-biblical. What the story of the Bible lays out is so much better. It's so much more beautiful. That though right now we experience, as Christians, the goodness of God, one day God will give us a body that lasts forever, And he will put us on this earth, the earth you're on right now, and it will be without sin. Because Jesus did not just come to save your souls from sin. He came to eradicate it. He came to eradicate sin, to remove it as far as Satan, what he brought in that curse. Grace goes further. And that is the kingdom. The kingdom of God is the way things are supposed to be. It's real and it's here, but you can't see it. And this is important because um, you're frustrated with that, but here's the reality. You are a physical manifestation as a Christian to that spiritual reality. You embody the principles of the kingdom because you're a citizen of the kingdom. So if you're an exterminator or you're a mechanic or you're a doctor or you're a teacher, you reflect in your vocation what it means to do that job the right way. You are, dare I say, true humanity. Because in God's kingdom, your relationship with him is restored. In God's kingdom, your relationship with each other is restored. In God's kingdom, your relationship with creation is restored. And more appropriately, just talking about and seeing all the anxiety and depression of the world, in God's kingdom, your relationship with yourself is restored. Now, we may feel that it's not, and this is a, a million-dollar term that you might want to get used to um, because it's, it's a huge term that we hold really close to, and it's called we live in the already, not yet. We believe, like a movie preview, we as Christians have experienced God's kingdom. We know it's here, and we cannot wait for the world to see the actual movie. We can't wait to see the actual movie. We're like the pink spoon at Baskin-Robbins. We taste the flavor, but we haven't had the whole ice cream cone yet. We're like a guy who sticks his finger in the sauce, but we haven't eaten the spaghetti yet. We have seen and experienced the foretaste of what God is doing in his kingdom, but we believe the real meal's coming, y'all. We believe and know that's coming. And this kingdom right now is in the midst of the kingdom of darkness. Now, all this is important and all this is good to know, but check this out. There's the third thing, and then we'll eventually get to our text, if ever. Um... If everything I've said is true up to this point, like let's say you leave here and you go grab your Bibles and you go, okay, I'm going to read and find out if this, this stuff is true, you know, and, and whatever, read 90 minutes in heaven, blah, 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 okay? Um, and you, you're going to see, you're, you're going you're to go through this and, and you process. If it is true 
it demands a response. It demands a response. Dallas Willard in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, says it like this. The present reality of the kingdom is what provokes response. New Testament passages make plain that this kingdom is not something to be accepted now and enjoyed later. Do you hear that? Do you hear? Because some of us believe that. We've accepted the, the, like Jesus, we're going to go to heaven someday. But right now, there's not implications to that. That's not the case. The kingdom of God is alive and well right now. It is in existence right now. He continues on um, uh, to enjoy later. But, some, but something to be entered now, according to Matthew 5, 18, uh, John 3. It is something that, uh, has, that already has flesh and blood citizens, according to John 18, Philippians 3 who have been transformed into it, Colossians 1, and our fellow workers in it, Colossians 4. The point is this. He goes on to tell a story of how um, he grew up in a rural part of, uh, of the South and, um, or of the, the Midwest. And when he grew up there, it was a lot of farm country. And uh, he's, he's kind of an older guy. And so when electricity wasn't everywhere at the time, it was eventually being brought from city to city to city and eventually got out to him. And he said, in this little farming community, when those electricity poles went up and, and you chose to partake in electricity, if you did, your life was automatically different. This is what he says. In, in accordance, as a great example, he says, uh, when those electric lines came by our farm, a very different way of living presented itself. Our relationships to fundamental aspects of life, daylight and dark, hot and cold, clean and dirty, work and leisure, preparing food and preserving it, were vastly changed. Meaning this, when electricity hit his town, it demanded a response. You didn't have to do things the way that you used to. So why am I saying all this? What does this have to do with the Beatitudes? Okay. Um, Man, some of us are leave, like living this barcode theology. This idea that we think when you go to the grocery store and you have a sticker on the ice cream, you scan the ice cream, and all this scanner knows is the barcode. It doesn't care what's behind it. And you scan that, and then you go to like another aisle and you grab popcorn. And you take the, the sticker for popcorn and the sticker for ice cream and you switch them, right? And now suddenly, what before you were ice cream, all the scanner knows is now that you're popcorn. It doesn't care. And that's us, right? Well, well, well I can, I'm a Christian, Jesus has saved me, but you're still ice cream, man. You're still acting like the old man. Hear me. You're still acting like a citizen of darkness. And what the Beatitudes, more appropriately, the Sermon on the Mount does is say, no, 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 no. If you are a citizen of the kingdom of God, this is how you act. This is what a true citizen of the kingdom of God does. This is who they are. It does not allow room for us to wiggle around in moderate, mediocre, casual Christianity. It demands a response. It changes your political views. It changes your ethical views, your philosophies, your parenting style, the way you love your spouse, the way you communicate with others, your job. It changes everything. Um, I've tried to find a quote. I'm, I'm reading uh, five commentaries and two books on, for the Sermon on the Mount for, for us to go through this. And um, usually I find a really good quote to correlate these two of why it's important for us to understand the kingdom of God in going into the Sermon on the Mount. And I couldn't find one, so I'm going to quote myself um, real quick. I'm that legit now. We've arrived, okay? Um, no. <laughs> So here, here's, here's what I want to say, because I think this is important. I wrote it down, honestly, more than anything else, so that um, you can hear me articulate as clean as I possibly can why this is important. So this is what I, I would say, why we need to know kingdom theology in accordance to the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, more specifically the Beatitudes, is teaching kingdom theology. So it's teaching what is right within the kingdom, the theology that is right in the kingdom. 
that what we value in the kingdom of God is not what is valued in the kingdom of this world. Therefore, those who do not have value in this world can find value in the kingdom of God. And those who are in the kingdom of God continue, must continue to value these kingdom principles alone and not the patterns of the world. Meaning this, this is what I'm trying to get at. When we juxtapose the kingdom of God next to the kingdom of this world, it is not the same. Success is not viewed the same, and therefore we should view success differently than our coworkers. Money, power, prestige, all these things are viewed differently from us. Because to us, if you want to be first, you need to be last. If you want to be a, a leader, you need to be a servant. For, for us, we view things completely different. And therefore, we need an ethic of the kingdom. We need to understand what are values of this kingdom of God. And that is what the Sermon on the Mount presents to us. These values. So, with all that said, Matthew chapter 5. Let's get at it. We're going to start in verse 1. If you don't know, a little gem nugget of truth to, to know. Um, it was actually Augustine in the, the early parts of the, the church that uh, named this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, for whatever that's worth. And it was used, um, it was the most quoted scripture up to the Council of Nicaea, which is in 325. So the first three centuries of the church, the Sermon on the Mount is the most quoted uh, passage in all of the Bible. So they cared about this because it taught them how to act very early on. If you will, it's like a like if we were a new company, it'd be like the employee handbook. And that falls apart in a couple levels, but if you can think of it like that. Verse 1 says this. Let's give it some context. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. So there's a couple things that I want to point out. First is the crowds. Remember, I read that passage in, in Matthew 4. The crowds are the ones who've been hearing about the kingdom of God, and so they want to know. His disciples are amongst them, right? And so they're hearing that, but furthermore, there are also people who've been healed, who have had demons exercised from them. That's the crowds. He went up onto the mountain, and John Del Husay, who's uh, writing a commentary on the book of Matthew, would argue that Jesus going up on the mountain is symbolic. It's very symbolic. This has only actually only happened within the Bible one other time, and it's a guy named Moses. And you know what Moses is doing? Moses is presenting to the people of God the law. And so Matthew is trying to juxtapose that, say, hey, pay attention. Jesus goes up on this mountain, and he's presenting the way you should act. Okay? So uh, take that for whatever it's worth. Let's keep going. He sat down, which is a teaching posture. And I would say he opened his mouth. Is seems redundant, but Jesus has been teaching with his life, and now he's going to open his mouth. And then he gets into the Beatitudes. Let me show you a structure for the Beatitudes because I, I think it's going to be helpful. Um, there's a simple layout of how the Beatitudes works, and I think we have it. I hope so we have it. But it basically starts with, blessed are blank for blank. So we're going to read what, what this means in the kingdom to be blessed. Now, the word blessed is really hard to translate into English because it ultimately means, and everything, everyone I think would agree on this, the highest, utmost good of humanity, meaning that you want to find the fulfillment you are looking for. Stop looking for it in men and women. Stop looking for it in education, in your job. Stop looking for it at the casino. Stop. That's not where those things are found. But if you truly want fulfillment, if you want to know what it's like to be truly human, Jesus and his kingdom offers that. And therefore, these type of people who live into that kingdom are blessed, experience the highest form of good. Meaning, man, you can lose everything. So, so the question on the table has to be, when you sit back on your table at dinner and you look at your beautiful family, You've got a great job and a great home and the table's set and you've got a lot of food and you just go, man, I am blessed. The question on the table has to be, why are you saying that? 
because the missionary in Asia at the same exact time was over a small bowl of rice who lost his spouse to some disease that could have been cured if he was in America. And here he sits and he sits back and goes, God, I am blessed. Where is true blessing meant to come? Where is it meant to, to, to come from? And ultimately, the only thing I can say to you as we go through these Beatitudes is, it's meant to get at this word satisfaction. Where are you satisfied? Where do you find your satisfaction? Now, I keep saying we're going to get to the Beatitudes, but check this out. Um, Luke, the Gospel of Luke, actually gives us the Beatitudes before Matthew's Beatitudes. And Luke is way harder than Matthew is in his Beatitudes. And he lays out some things that I want to read to you as we read Matthew's Beatitudes, reading Luke's first. This is what Luke's Beatitudes are. This is what he says in Luke 6, 20 through 26. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophet. So he's naming very um, uh, uh, accurate to what's what's going on in Matthew, except there's a difference. Now Luke does something that Matthew doesn't. He adds some woes. So he's going to go and says, this is good for you, but I got some bad news for you. And then he goes on to say the bad news. And this is what he says. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their father did so uh, to the false prophet. So he, here's, here's the point. Um, I said that satisfaction thing. I don't think anywhere in the Bible God is trying to make you feel guilty when you down that Chipotle burrito and you're stuffed, right, and you're full. You shouldn't in that moment go, oh, my gosh, woe is me. Why did I do that? God is angry. I'm not supposed to be full right now, right? Or, or you're laughing as you're watching a show and he's going, are you laughing right now? Oh, you, you think it's funny. Just wait. Just wait, okay? That, that, that doesn't seem to be biblical, right? No, What's going on and what Luke is trying to create within us is asking a simple question. Where do you find your satisfaction? Or more appropriately, what kingdom are you relying on? Because if your your reliance and your satisfaction is in this kingdom, all of your joy is in this world, all of your laughter is in this world, you're putting all your chips in this kingdom, that's bad news for you. Because if God removes the food off the table, the family from the table, if he takes the house, the job, the wife, what are you left with? Where is your identity? And if it is found in the kingdom of this age, you, whoa, you, like, be, be aware of what's going on. That's bad. But if you find your hope in recognizing, God, in this moment, for whatever reason, you have given me this. You've given me three beautiful children, a beautiful wife, a home, a great job. You've given me this. And, and at any moment, if, if you, as you've given, if you take away, my blessing doesn't come from these things you've given me. It's come from you. Now, we have to drive our heart there. We have to. We have to make our heart believe that and know that because this age is very real and the kingdom of God seems so far away. Yeah, it's coming someday. Yeah, it's going to be visible, but right now I don't feel it. So we have to remind ourselves and remind ourselves my comfort, my joy, my laughter does not come from this world. I live by different principles. I live in what Tim Keller calls the upside down kingdom. So Matthew lays out these 
beatitudes, if you will, these blesseds. Let's go through them. Um, starting in verse 3, chapter 5, it says this. Citizens of the kingdom, w- w- uh, uh, of the kingdom of God, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you are a citizen of the kingdom of God, you know you are blessed to be a part of the, 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 uh, being a citizen of the kingdom of God if you are poor in spirit. Now, Luke said poor um, physically, and I think we need to wrestle with that, but what we're wrestling at this point with Matthew and saying poor in spirit, um, which accurately translated, I think, would communicate an idea of um, blessed are those who don't think they have all the answers spiritually. Like, you can look at your neighbor and do go like, man, they are a mess. But here's the reality. So are you. The only reason you, you have any type of pompous, the only reason you feel like you have it together is because Jesus has it together for you. How often do you struggle reading your Bible or praying or talking to your neighbor? How often can you not just love your kids well? You fail and you fail. And poor in spirit recognizes, man, I do not um, put myself in a place where God owes me anything. I am broken. I do not have it together. I need direction. And Jesus is that direction. We are citizens of the kingdom if we recognize we rely only on the king. We're broken. We're poor in spirit. Now, I, I want to give you um, what is the opposition of what some of these are. And, and I think what we experience of the kingdom of darkness, uh, the poor in spirit would probably be more accurate of people putting God in a place where he owes them something. So when, when something bad does happen, they shake their fists to the heavens because they go, God, I've been good. I've been going to church. I even read my Bible yesterday. I, I, I prayed to you. I know you're real. Why are you allowing this to happen to my kids or to my spouse? And you've put yourself in a place not to be poor in spirit, but rather God owes you something. Because you have it together, God should get his stuff together. That's not poor in spirit. That's not being a citizen of the kingdom. The second thing, being a citizen of the kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Again, um, this doesn't mean we have to constantly strive to be mourning. I want you to look at that next part of the word, for they shall be comforted. I think this all comes down to where do we find comfort? Where do we find comfort? Um, I want to read something to you. Um, actually, you know what? I'll skip this. I'll, I'll just say this um, because of time. Uh, the reality is, um, when I'm done here today, I'm going to go home, and every single Sunday, especially when football season's on, I'm going to sit on a certain part of the couch. I'm gonna, I know how I'm going to sit. I'm going to put one leg up. I'm going to sit on my leg, and, um, and, and I'm going to eat lunch. And I, the, there's so many endorphins going to me right now just thinking about it. Um, and there's just this moment where I'm like, yes. Like, this is so good. And maybe I'll watch football for as long as I can, and then I'm going to take, like, a four-hour nap. Um, And it's so good. It's just so good, okay? Now, here's the reality. That's a good gift from God, okay? But the reality is um, I cannot put all my comfort in that. Like, if that was taken away, or more appropriately, let's make it just real. Like, what we've talked about is sitting at those tables. If there's not a sense of you looking around at the world and, and understanding this is good, but this is not the best. Like food is good, but food is meant to lead me to Jesus. And when I see food in it as an end of in itself, it completely removes what food is supposed to be. Or dating, or marriage, sex, alcohol. All these things are means to get me somewhere else. They are not meant to be the comfort I'm to rely on. As a matter of fact, there's, there's a sense of going, this is good, but it's not good enough. One day, I'll truly sit on a real couch, and I'll have a real lunch, and I'll take a 10-hour nap. That is what I look forward to. So, so we find our comfort not in this world. We mourn as opposed to, and this is what I would put um, in, in opposition of, 
finding our comfort in the world now, saying things like this, and I, I hear this a lot, I hope Jesus waits to come back because. Like, I want you to hear what's in the ethos of that, that statement. I, I, I want Jesus to come back, but I want to do this first. As if, when Jesus comes back, you won't get to experience this great thing. <laughs> you're dumb. <laughs> when Jesus comes back, you're going to be like, that's laughable that I don't even thought that. Like the joy that will enter, our comfort is not of this world. So blessed are those who do not find that comfort, who mourn. He's not done. Let's keep going. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Uh, Martin Luther um, came to this word. If you know Martin Luther is, he's translating the Bible from Latin to German. And it was, when he's translating, he struggled with this translation of meek um, because it didn't come off as the way that he felt like it should. And so I don't know a terrible amount of the German language, but what I do understand is they cram a bunch of words together to make a new word. And so what he did is in German is he, com- he combined two words together. When he comes to meek, this is in, uh, in 1535, uh, uh, he basically adds the two words, soft strength. That's how he translates it. So it's like soft strength and in, in, it would be meekness. And, and this, is, this is a big deal. Um, he ends up actually saying this in response to meekness. The basis of our power is not anger or vengeance, but trusting and waiting upon the Lord. Like, if you can think of um, those of us who are in the kingdom of God, citizens of kingdom, we, we have something in our back pocket, don't we? We go, I know you think you have it all and you've won, but just wait. Like, there's a soft strength to know you have the power because Jesus is in your corner. But I'm not trying to make my way happen. I'm not trying to do this and trying to get what I want. No, no, no. I trust. In his kingdom, I have a soft strength. I'm meek. And meekness is more than just welcomed. It's exhibited by Jesus himself. That he shows us as he's, he's marching going on at any point towards the cross, he could have called a legion of angels to rescue him. But no, he has soft strength. He has the power, but he trusts in God in doing what he wants to. I, I would say opposed to this in the, the kingdom of the world, I would say this, it's self-empowerment and taking control of every situation. You wanting to do things your way. We're not done. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. It's interesting with the word uh, righteous because um, righteousness has an exact um, word that goes in English with the same Greek word. So the Greek word um, means righteousness. It actually also means justice. Now that's important because when I say the word righteous, um, you think of like personal holiness, but that's not what Jesus is getting at with righteousness. He's getting at um, more appropriately rightness. Like when you live the right way or when we, we look at the world around us, blessed are those who, like, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, rightness, the way the world is supposed to be because one day you will be satisfied. And this is what I've been talking about. That's the kingdom of God. You, 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 you look at all the things within race, all the things in the fight of life, all the things within politics, and you go, I just want things to be right. That is a good, God-honoring thing within you as a citizen of the kingdom of God, as opposed to, um, and it's simple, right, Uh, wanting injustice or wanting your way or wanting unrighteousness. The kingdom of darkness looks at these things and goes, well, we need to get what we need to get. And we see this in the corruption of high CEO companies all the time, don't we? They exploit low um, classes in other countries constantly, right, For, for, for their gain. But blessed are those who look at that and go, that's not right. That's not right. I've got to fight for that as a child of the kingdom. So he goes on. We're not done. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I, um, 
I think this is really important to notice, but when you read blessed are the merciful, um, know that it's a- merciful is actually like a verb, meaning blessed are those who practice mercy. It actually only appears one more time in the New Testament referring to Jesus in the book of Hebrews. Um, so, so essentially, I mean, this, this, is, this is easy, right? As Christians and citizens of the kingdom, we look around the world um, at people who do not have, and we have mercy on them. So we see the panhandler not as a guy who's choosing not to work, but we have mercy. Not like we know everyone's story, but we have mercy. And you know why we have mercy? Not just because one day we will receive mercy, but because currently we have received mercy. So we're going to stand before Jesus, and we're going to see this in the Sermon on the Mount, one of the most terrifying verses that we can read in all the Bible. You will be held accountable by the standard in which you judge. (laughs) Be careful. Be careful. So citizens of the kingdom, we're merciful. We are merciful. There's no option. There's no option in that. Goes on. We're almost done. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I always think when I read this um, of kids, right, because there's a sense of, um, and even the poor, to be honest with you, uh, maybe not the poor in America, but I know poor in, in other countries, there's just this sense of like outside of not experiencing evil themselves and being removed from certain societal issues, um, and kids even as they grow up, it's a lot easier for them just to go, yeah, God's real. Right? Like they can, they can, and I think this is a, a both and. This is an already not yet. You will see God in ways that you, you, you maybe wouldn't have. And in the same time, you will truly see God. It's interesting because um, before the scientific revolution, people had always believed that the way that your heart is affects the way that your eyes see. Isn't that interesting? Like the idea that if your heart is corrupt, you'll see things in a corrupt way. And I think this is what Jesus is really getting at, right? It's not just nerve endings and, and, and uh, you know, however else uh, vision works. I have no idea. Nerve endings. Let's just stick with that. Um, it's not just that. There's something more. And Jesus is getting at, like, if, if you're pure in heart, you'll, you'll see what God is doing. You'll see God. And I think that's really awesome. Um, juxtaposing that to um, you get your, or, yeah, you, you uh, uh, or, sorry, um, clustering your mind with the wickedness of the world and, and uh, uh, seeping and allowing that sin to seep into your heart. I, I, uh, I read in my own devotional time last month, the book of first Corinthians and in first Corinthians 14, 20, it says, um, that we are to be infants in evil. When I came across that passage, I thought it was really crazy because if you think of an infant, what can an infant do? I mean, pretty much nothing. They can't clean themselves. They can't feed themselves. They can't walk. They can't crawl. And we as Christians or citizens of the kingdom are to be infants in evil. We are to be like infants, but with we're not to know all that there is in the, the ways of the kingdom of darkness. We're to be infants in that. I mean, you can call that prude or naive or whatever you want, but the reality is that's not our kingdom. That's not our kingdom. Okay, two more. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Um, I love that they're called sons of God because I think peacemaking is at the core of what God is doing. Colossians 1.20, he's, he's uh, uh, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the story of Jesus, right? And we, as peacemakers, are only peacemakers because we reflect the peacemaker. So, so God is a peacemaker, and as citizens of the kingdom, we reflect the king in that way. And of course, this is the opposite of this, is, is wanting war, wanting your own way, wanting uh, rivals. In a situation where you feel like there's an awkward situation between you and her, or between you and him, and you're like, well, we just don't like each other. Christians, in that moment, we don't play like that. Maybe you're not going to be best buddies, but the reality is you're going to go, and you're going to succumb, you're going to ask for forgiveness, and you're going to go, hey, like at the end of the day, I want to make sure we're okay. And maybe we won't hang out, that's fine. But I want to make sure on my end, if I've hurt you or done anything wrong, I'm sorry. More appropriately, when you know you haven't done the wrong thing. We are peacemakers. We're peacemakers. Okay, last one, then we'll wrap up. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, he goes on in verses 11 and 12, but um, we're going to save 11 and 12 for next week uh, because I think 11, verses 11 and 12 are a segue to what he's talking about with salt and light. So we can, because in a lot of what he's saying in verse 10 is talking about verses 11 and 12, we're going to stick with uh, uh, verse 10. And this, this I can't help but think is Jesus is looking at all these people. Um, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Directly near him are his disciples. And as he sees his disciples, you can't help but um, resonate what he tells them in John 15. Listen to this, because this is huge. Um, Especially in us in the West, we wrestle with why we're not persecuted or what persecution is. It's not even close to the same as people overseas. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Okay, he's talking about that kingdom, right? But because you are not of this world, you're not of that kingdom, but I chose you out of this world, therefore the world hates you. Remember uh, the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Um, this is really important as we wrap up because I think this is going to kind of uh, put a bow on all of these blesseds. We need to address something that I've just labeled as cool Christianity. Um, we have somehow in our minds, because of our past in America, that Americanism or being a citizen of this world can somehow play well with being a citizen of the kingdom. Hear me, it can't. It cannot. There's been no culture, no society, no city, no state, no country, no government that perfectly jives with the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God will go to any of those realms and there will always be something that butts up against their values. Always. And I'm not just talking about like us being pro-life or, or, or against certain marriage values. At the core, what I'm saying is if you read the list of these blesseds, if you read the list of these things, Alistair Begg says they are a list of losers. So, so you could never be, yes, I'm all about success in the way he's about success. No, no. We do not care about money the way they care about money. We don't care about power the way they care. Listen to this. You're to be meek. You're to be a peacemaker. That is not the way of the world. We hold to an upside-down kingdom in us to try to jive. I can be a Christian and still be in this. No, our values are different. We care about different things than they care about. And maybe you don't like, if if you're not a Christian here, that I'm creating an us-them. But please understand, at our core, as citizens of a different kingdom, we do believe different things. And that is not because we are better. I would argue it's just because we recognize we're worse. So all I can say in this moment is, when we think of persecution, I'm not asking you to go out and be beheaded somewhere. But what I am saying is that you need to make a stand where your values truly are, which means actually some of you need to change your values to values of the kingdom. I mean, you didn't get that promotion. You don't fight and claw to get it. You're meek. You have a soft power. God knows. You don't think God knows? God knows. He'll do what he wants. Like here, you, you, you want to write, no, blessed are the peacemakers. I, I, I see injustice. I care about rightness. This is a list of losers. According to the world, we are an upside down way of thinking. So, so you want to be great. If you want to be great, be the least. That's what Jesus puts in front of us. Now, um, here's how I'll close. I think the beauty of all of this is these values, these things that are put in front of us and will continue to be put in front of us in all the Sermon on the Mount are only great because they represent the king. 
The kingdom of God is beautiful. So when people go to the mechanic, dude, why are you honest and why do you charge so little? You could be charging so much more than that. Or why as an employer do you go, or do people go to you, why do you treat your employees, why do you give your employees that much? You can cut corners and make money here. No, 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 I reflect the kingdom. Now that would be awkward if you said that, right? But, but the truth is, here in your heart, you're knowing that you're reflecting something different than they're reflecting. You have different values than they value. And though that is awesome, though even the world can go, you have something that is completely beyond this age, this world, these things. It's beyond that. Though that's awesome, hear me when I say this, it is only awesome because Jesus is awesome. That kingdom is only great because Jesus is great. In, in uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, The Magician's Nephew, which is the first book in the series of the Chronicles of Narnia, the actual first book in the, the series of the Chronicles of Narnia, and in this story, there's a part where, where um, uh, um, you have in the whole Chronicles of Narnia, uh, C.S. Lewis is using figures, these animals, to symbolize certain things. And at one point, he symbolizes... Um, the kingdom of God coming into the kingdom of darkness. Now, there's other symbolic things like a lion in the story of all the Chronicles of Narnia is this Jesus figure. He's like over Narnia. But before Narnia is ever created, here is um, these people who are in Narnia, and it's just void, and it's black, and it's starting this story. So they're in Narnia, there's just this void blackness, and they begin to describe what happens. And C.S. Lewis is trying to paint a picture of what it looks like for the kingdom of God to enter into that darkness. This is what he says. In the darkness, something was happening. At last, a voice had begun to sing. The blackness overhead all at once was blazing with stars. They didn't come out gently one by one as they do on summer evenings, as, uh, on a summer evening. One moment, there, were, there had been nothing but darkness. The next moment, a thousand, thousand points of light leaped out. Single stars, constellations, and planets, brighter and bigger than any in the world. There were no clouds. The earth was of many colors. They were fresh, hot, and vivid. They made you feel excited. Now, just stop. Don't look at the screen. Look at me, okay? So here's the story. Here's the story. They're looking at all this being created, and he's talking. He's trying to symbolize. Here's the kingdom of God coming into the the kingdom of darkness, and it's hot and vivid, and it makes you feel excited. Here they are, so excited to see stars and colors. They've never been able to see the kingdom of God is beautiful. And it goes on to say that, right? It goes on to to continue to, to put this in front of us. They made you feel excited until you saw the singer. Now, now they see this figure in this outlier because there's nothing, and then the singing happens. And as the singing happens, that's when the stars shoot up. That's when the, 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 the uh, constellations appear. That's when the planets, that's when uh, uh, Narnia is being created. This figure, and they can't quite tell, but they're excited about what they're seeing. And they say this, they made you feel excited until you saw the singer himself, and then you forgot everything else. It was a lion. Now, if you don't know the story, again, The lion symbolizes Jesus, that though the kingdom is beautiful, though the kingdom is awesome, though even the world can appreciate meekness, humility, caring about rightness, hear me, this kingdom is nothing without its king. Its king is so much better. Its king is the reason you want to be in the kingdom. Its king has been patient enough with you. When you continue to fight against that kingdom, this king has offered over and over and over for you to be a part of this kingdom. This king cares about its citizens so much that when you're not meek, when you're not humble, when you don't care about rightness, he has taken the pain, he's taken the pain so that you can still experience that blessing. Read that list, y'all. Look at that list. 
Who do you think ultimately was poor in spirit when he comes leaving all of eternity, comes to earth and says, I only do what the Father tells me to do? You, who do you think mourns? We're told in Hebrews 2 that with vehement cries and tears, he is able to save. Jesus the man is a man of sorrows. He came to experience that brokenness. So when you still find comforts in the world, it's okay, son. It's okay, daughter. I took care of that. Be a part of my kingdom. But he's not done. Blessed are the meek. I love in Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and meek. Blessed are those who are hunger and thirst for righteousness. No one cares about rightness more than Jesus Christ. Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are those who are peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted over and over and over. Point to the fact that Jesus experienced the lack of blessing so you can experience the blessing of the kingdom of God. He is a great king. Everything else fades away as he steps on the scene. May we be true citizens of that kingdom. Let me pray for you. Father, thanks. Thanks for who you are. Um, and we're grateful for your word. Uh, we recognize, God, that uh, it's powerful. And, and the reality is, um, though I might have gotten in the way in some of these things, our prayer is that we would truly know as sons and daughters of the kingdom of God, you have given us this great sermon to see and to form our life around. We need to change. We need to. But, but our prayer is that we would only change in response to what you have done that we would not force legalism or have-tos, but we would respond properly to grace, that we would see you as a king and our hearts would melt, that we would know that this is the highest form of humanity, that we pray that your kingdom would come. We pray, God, that as we can lay out all these different things for Redemption Church, um, but we are just not going to be around in 500 years. Your kingdom will be. We are not the big deal. You're the show. You're what it's about. May we submit to that. May we not get in the way of that. May we learn to continue to, to be more meek, continue to, to strive for rightness, to be peacemakers. May we be citizens of your kingdom. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.